We're going to be taking a look at a story here today. It's actually the, uh, one of the really last recorded miracles of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, it's a really important miracle. And that's actually really, probably one of the reasons why I think it's important is because it actually names the guy that is, is, that's had the miracle done to him. And that's kind of raised a lot of questions in a lot of minds of scholars and theologians of the ages as to why does this guy actually get named in the Gospels. Um, and the reality is maybe, maybe, we don't know this for sure, but maybe this guy, uh, his name is Bartimaeus, by the way. Good name for you to name your kid. Like one of these days you're going to have a kid. Bartimaeus, Bart for short, Bart. If your last name Simpson, Bart Simpson, great name. Um, Bartimaeus is a guy that actually gets named, and some people believe perhaps because he uh, once started becoming a follower of Jesus, actually became a part of the early church, and he became known. And sort of when the gospel stories were being circulated, it's sort of the little chronicle, the little story about how Bartimaeus went from being blind and a beggar on the streets and knowing nobody, probably being nameless, to being Becoming a guy that was not only healed, but also became a follower of Jesus and was, had, a, had a name that went along with this. Just an amazing miracle of God in this guy's life. So we have a lot to learn from this man by the name of Bartimaeus, and that's the story that we're going to read here today. Uh, the story picks up in around Mark chapter 10. Uh, we'll pick it up around verse 46. We'll read the story down to the end of the chapter, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get to work taking a look at the story of Jesus healing blind Bartimaeus. Here's what it says in verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, who was the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside, and he had heard uh, that it was Jesus of Nazareth. And he began to cry out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. And he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. And Jesus then said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man then said, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed Jesus on the way. So God, right now we ask you that you would just open our eyes to be able to understand, to see uh, really just the story of how you rescued this guy, Bartimaeus, how you changed his life, you transformed him from being one that was identified, his whole identity surrounded being blind and being a beggar. In so many ways, he was just part of the marginalization of culture and society. No one recognized him, no one identified him, no one saw him as a human being, they just saw him as sort of a taker, a consumer. And yet, Jesus, you paused, you stopped, you healed, you rescued him, you redeemed him. And God, I pray in a lot of ways that you would open our eyes to be able to see our story is not too dissimilar from this guy. So help us right now, Father, give us eyes to see that we need to understand um, how you rescue us. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I want to do this morning is... um, I'm going to give a very fast like, little recap of what's been happening here. Now, we see Jesus in his ministry, and what we see sort of in this portion of the book of Mark is Jesus is now making his way steadfastly to the region of, of Jerusalem. It's really important. Uh, in other words, this sort of marks the end of Jesus' life. And so what Mark tends to focus on in his gospel is he focuses on primarily on the death of Jesus. 
In other words, in every, everything in Jesus' life, Mark tends to focus on his death. In other words, for the telling of Mark, the way that Mark tells us the story about Jesus' life, he really wants us to understand that this king has a reign, this king has glory, and the way that this king reigns and the way that this king demonstrates his glory is not by ascending to a throne, is not by uh, the typical ways or the stereotypical ways in which we oftentimes identify greatness or glory, but the way that this king ascends to a throne is... His throne looks very different. His throne actually is a cross. And the crown that he will have placed upon his head is not one of di- diadems, uh, diamonds and other emeralds and other precious stones, but a crown of thorns. That Jesus, through the retelling of the story of Mark, he wants us to understand that Jesus has a destiny. There's a purpose. There's something that Jesus has come to accomplish, and it's going to the cross. He will die. Uh, we're told throughout the story that he will die not for himself. It's not necessarily a tragic end of a young upstart, you know, entrepreneur who's got everything going for him, but that Jesus' death is actually by design. Not just simply by fate, by happenstance, by chance, but by design of the Trinity. That God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have predestined, predesigned that Jesus would one day make his way to a cross and it would be a horrific type of a death in the place of other people, in the stead of somebody else. In other words, Jesus will die for somebody else or for other people in that sense. And that's where Mark wants us to understand the story. Now, what we see here in this little passage is that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and on his way to Jerusalem, he goes through this path um, on this road called Jericho, or on this road through Jericho. Uh, I'm going to show you a little slide and have the guys maybe kind of queue it up. I don't think it's in necessarily this order, but I'll show you a little bit of a slide right here. I don't know if you can see the little red circles, but see the Sea of Galilee in the very top? That's where Jesus did the majority of his ministry. You see like uh, Capernaum, I don't know if you can see that, or the Gadarenes. Um, all of those areas in the very top area, uh, section of the map is and would have been the place that Jesus did the majority of his ministry. Now, what Jesus is doing now is he's going down towards Jerusalem, or I should say going up to Jerusalem, which actually geographically is south southwest, um, but because uh, Jerusalem is actually on an incline of about 2,500 feet, um, they would always describe Jerusalem, going to Jerusalem, no matter where you're going, as going up to Jerusalem. Now Jesus would have taken this little river, so you see the Sea of Galilee, there's a little river down there going all the way down to the region of Qumran, or that down there is called the Dead Sea. And uh, Jesus would have taken some sort of path down that. That would have been the Jordan River. And while Jesus was taking his way down there, he came to this region of Jericho. And you see the circle there, and that's the city of Jericho. Now, from Jericho uh, to Jerusalem would have just been a straight upward path. Now, you've got to think of it this way. The roads that you would have traveled back then, bottom line is they just weren't safe. I mean, yes, they had Roman guards monitoring the roads, and they had these way stations in which you could go and kind of be safe, and it was, you know, based upon your tax dollars at work, um, putting Roman guards in place, even though no one really wanted Roman guards there. It was sort of an occupation that nobody desired or wanted, but the fact of the matter is that the roads back in the day were not safe. Um, it's not the type of thing that you would send your wife on, on a trip, like, go take a nice road trip. You die on road trips. Like, you just don't do road trips. And, and they were very dangerous because usually in those areas, in between cities or between villages, you would have all sorts of thieves and robbers and brigands kind of living out there. And anybody that would sort of travel by, they would rob them. And so that, this was a very common practice. So Jesus is not doing something safe by any stretch of the imagination. But Jesus then comes in a story here to this region of Jericho. 
And some of you might be familiar with the city of Jericho. It would have been the very first city that when the children of Israel came into the uh, uh, land of Canaan, they crossed over the Jordan and came into the region of Jericho. Probably some of you are familiar with the story where they marched around Jericho and the walls of Jericho fell. Now, this was a region. It wasn't just a city. It was a region. So there's an area. There was kind of like an old city of Jericho and sort of a newer city of Jericho as well. So uh, this, probably, this would have been the area where Jesus was. What I want to take a look at here today are basically three things because in the story we're told, Mark tells us, and also this story is taken up in the Gospel of Mark as well as in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus comes into this region of Jericho, and there's a man there by the name of Bartimaeus, um, which basically is, is two words, Bar, uh, which means son of, and Timaeus means his dad. Timaeus was his dad's name. So Bartimaeus was the guy's name. And so Jesus, we're told, as he enters into the region or comes into this region of Jericho, uh, what happens is this blind man, he's a beggar starts to cry out, yell for Jesus. And what's very unique is he screams at the top of his lungs because somehow word gets into this guy's ears that Jesus is coming to town. And somehow he had heard word that not only does Jesus come into town, but that Jesus has some sort of healing capabilities or healing powers. And not only that, but Bartimaeus has some sort of insight, which we'll take a look at in a moment here. But Bartimaeus, this blind beggar who have known nothing but degradation. He would have been the type of guy uh, that, for the most part, would have been viewed as just a stereotypical homeless person in, in the middle of, say, San Luis, or in the middle of a downtown LA or downtown San Francisco. Just the type of person, for the most part, you're not going to really try to pull aside, kind of hang out with, unless you've been transformed and you see yourself as a blind beggar who's been redeemed. Um, for the most part, you just typically view people like that as just sort of drags on society. That's the way uh, this guy would have been viewed. And what we're going to see here in this story is that Jesus actually calls him, rescues him, heals him, redeems him, and this guy becomes sort of the poster child of Jesus' new uh, ministry, his new work about what's about to take place. Now, the reality is, if I ran a marketing you know, firm, and if I was going to market somebody's brand new book, or market somebody's brand new ministry, or market someone's you know, preaching ministry, you're not going to go and find some sort of homeless dude and make him sort of the poster child. But that's what Jesus does. He takes this guy who's recognized as sort of the lowest of the low, the lowest common denominator of all lowest common denominators in that particular region, rescues him, but then this guy becomes the main person that's communicating the beauty and the glory of what Jesus has done for him. So what I want to do this morning is I want to basically take a look at three things, and the first of which... Mark's going to tell us with regard to this guy is that he's got spiritual blindness. We're going to see, first of all, that Jesus heals this blind beggar's physical blindness. Second thing that we're going to take a look at is that Jesus heals this blind beggar's spiritual blindness. We'll take a look at that more in a second. Third thing we'll take a look at is really a question. And it's really this question of what does it cost Jesus to actually heal this blind beggar? Because it costs Jesus something. But what does it cost Jesus to heal this blind beggar? That's the question I think Mark wants to press home to us. That's the question that Mark wants us to ask. So the first real thing that we'll be taking a look at is this, is that Jesus heals this blind beggar's physical blindness. In Mark chapter 10, we read the story again. I'll just repeat it very quickly. We see that, and then they came to Jericho, and he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and the crowd. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. Jesus said to him, in verse 52, we'll jump down. He says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on his way. This is actually the second healing that Mark records for us of a blind person in the Gospel of Mark. 
And what's interesting is that Mark writes in a very unique way. And I think what Mark's doing here is if you kind of look at the bigger picture, and I think one of the tendencies for us to do is when we read our Bibles, is we sort of fall in the trap of just simply being focused in or straightjacketed by chapters and verses. Now, there's nothing wrong with reading verses or being memorizing verses and things like that. That's great. The problem is that the Bible is not written according to chapters and verses the way that we typically have them. That came years later, and it's basically they did that for us to kind of put an address on various verses of the Bible. So when someone's talking, they're like, oh, yeah, the blind guy. Like, where's that at? Oh, uh, somewhere around the middle, two-thirds part of the book of Mark. You're like, gosh, that's going to take me hours to locate. So someone with a lot of brains came along and says, you know what, how about if we break every single verse down or every th single sentence down or in sentences and put a, an address on it? And that's what they did. So the problem is, is when we read our Bibles oftentimes, we don't read it as a story. We read it as a chapter. We read chapter 10. All right, and the next day we come back and we read chapter 11. Next day we come back and read chapter 12. And if we're feeling really ambitious, we're like chapter 13 as well. Really ambitious, we're like throwing a psalm. We're like, I'm getting super spiritual. The point of the matter is this, is that what we end up doing is we forget the storyline. And probably when the first century Jews would have read this, first century Christians, they would have just read it all in one setting. All in one setting. And the whole story would have just made sense. And the way Mark tells the story is he gives us the story of two people that were actually healed physically from blindness. The first person that was healed from blindness, we're told in around chapter 8, verse 22, that Jesus calls a guy who is blind, he doesn't see things well, and he doesn't see things at all, and Jesus lays hands in him, puts a little bit of spit into his eyes, heals him. Now the guy sees people as like tree stumps walking around. Jesus, you know, asks him, what do you see? He's like, I see people like tree stumps walking around. Jesus says, okay, great, let me touch you again, touches his eyes again, now he heals him completely. Now, what you got to understand is that in between the first healing of Jesus healing this guy, the blind guy, and the second healing of Jesus healing this guy are three accounts of Jesus telling his disciples that he's going to die. So in other words, you can kind of look at it this way. It's sort of like literary bookends. On the one end, you see a blind guy healed. On the other bookend, another blind guy healed. And in between, you see three expressions, three uh, descriptions of Jesus telling his disciples he's going to die. His own disciples, his own closest men, just don't get it. They don't understand it. So what Mark's trying to tell us in a very subtle way, by dropping these little hints or these little clues, is that Jesus' own disciples, they're blind. They're blind. They don't get it. They're still blinded by their own power-craved ambitions for greatness. We just saw that last week. They're blinded by their own desires to somehow use Jesus to attain some sort of greatness for themselves so that they will be seen as great. So they can conquer others. Jesus sort of becomes a means to the end of their obtaining greatness. And Jesus would basically say, you're blind. That's what blindness is. You still think that greatness is equivalent to you exercising power and authority over lesser people. Jesus says you're blind. You don't get it. Power is not, and authority is not, something which you use and exercise over people and you usurp your authority and your dominion and your power and your kingdom and your decrees over somebody else. But true power, true authority is being able to relinquish all of that for the sake of humbling yourself. Jesus would say it like this. True kingdom of God looks like the first becoming the last. 
true moving forward of God's kingdom, what it truly looks like is when someone slaps you on the cheek, you give them the other cheek. What God's kingdom looks like truly is it looks like when someone asks you to go one mile, you say, I'll go two miles. What Jesus is really trying to do is he's setting the stage saying that the reality is is that the way that you view the kingdom of God is different than the way the kingdom of God truly is. And you're still blind. So what we see sandwiched in between these two physical healings is Jesus communicating very clearly that there's also a deeper-rooted problem of spiritual blindness. But first of all, I really want to emphasize the fact that Jesus heals this physical blindness of this particular guy. It's important to know this, that God truly cares about healing people. I mean, this is one of the beautiful things about the Bible is that at the end of the story, we can actually look forward and see what happens in the end. That in the end, God says that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and we will be restored. We will be healed. That the end of the story is that God will actually take our bodies that are breaking down, that are prone to destruction, that are prone to breaking down, and God will give us a new body. It's a resurrected body. A body that won't break down. A body that won't be destroyed. A body that won't be prone to the types of various diseases and destruction and depression, all these other types of things that we find ourselves with today. That there will be, the Bible describes, shalom. Peace. It it will be a cosmic peace. God will accomplish this and he will give us a new body that will be part of this final, conclusive work that he will bring about. In other words, Everything in this planet, everything in this world is going somewhere, and the, where, the place that it's going is complete healing overall. And that's really good news. That should be really good news for all of us. But if you're young, which a lot of our church typically is young, uh, that doesn't make a lot of sense to you, but the older you get, the more you start to ache, the more you start to find things are falling out of place than what they should be, hair starts dropping out, you start growing gray stuff all over the face, maybe on your back if you're a dude, if you're a girl, that's not good, but the bottom line is that things start changing in your body and you realize this body's breaking down, it's not what it was when I was 22 years old, but the hope is, is that things are going somewhere, God will one day restore and redeem all things. That's really good news. Really good news. And so what we see when Jesus does a miracle in terms of a healing in his ministry, in his life, and we see that even in the book of Acts when a healing takes place, or even see that even in our church, we've seen people healed even in our own church. I was talking with a girl the other day, and she was talking about she had need for an operation, yet God healed her even before the operation needed to take place. We see people healed. It's beautiful. I love being able to pray for people and see people actually healed. It's amazing. This happened to my daughter just a few weeks ago. She was complaining of just, just serious back pain. My wife and I, we laid hands on her, prayed for her. We're like, let's just pray over you. And uh, we drew a bath for her because she just wanted to kind of soak. And then she said to us later, she goes, Mom, Dad, just before I got in a bath, I realized I didn't have any pain anymore. It was totally gone. It was actually really pr- troubling her for several hours. And we're like, sweetheart, God healed you. We really believe that there was a healing from God. He answered our prayers. So the point of the matter is we believe in God healing things, God healing our bodies. So the point that I would make with regard to that is that all things in this world are going towards a place of final, complete thorough healing. When we get little glimpses of healing here in this life, those are intended to be things that are glimpses or snapshots. If you want to look at it this way, it's a trailer. Things to come. It's like watching a video clip of what will one day take place in the future when God 
fully reigns, and his reign is fully realized. So that's why we pray for people who are sick. We believe that God may want to interject himself in their life and bring about healing for his glory and the blessing of God's people. So we see that take place with this guy, that Jesus healed this blind beggar in his physical blindness. The second thing that we see is that Jesus heals this blind beggar's spiritual blindness. And we see this a little bit more profound in verse 47 on. says this, when he heard that, Je- that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out. And then he said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But then he cried all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And then Jesus stopped and said, call him. Now, what's amazing, first and foremost, is that somehow we don't have no idea how this guy heard about Jesus. We don't know anything about really his story or anything about what's gone on with this guy's life. But he uses a phrase that's very significant. He describes Jesus as the son of David. Now, again, this would have been one of those um, phrases. You know, I've described the Bible in a lot of ways or even verses or phrases that are used in the New Testament as being like these little hyperlinks, meaning these little phrases are just charged with all sorts of knowledge and wisdom and understanding surrounding them. So when someone goes around saying, oh, that's the son of David, they're not just cruising around being like, oh, yeah, like David had a son that that just happens to be it. That's not at all it. The phrase son of David basically is another way of saying this is the king. This is the long-awaited promised king that's come by promise of God through the lineage of David, he will be the new king that will rule and reign over all things, setting all the wrongs to right. That's exactly what they meant. Uh, and it's based upon a promise in the Old Testament. King David, most of you guys know who he was. He's a great king. He had flaws. He had failures. Uh, a lot of times people like to take the life of David, and they're like, David was a great guy. Emulate him. Uh, what part? Um, Praising Jesus. I mean, the David, David, it's risky when you look at old people like that, Old Testament people like that, and you're like, emulate them. What part? They weren't perfect. Like, there's certain things about their life that was awesome, and certain other parts about David's life you definitely don't want to emulate. Gets you into trouble. The point of the matter is this, is that David wanted to build God a house, a temple. God tells David, David, uh, your hands are bloody, meaning you, you killed someone. You killed lots of people. But what I will do for you is I'm not going to take your promises to build me a house, but instead, uh, I'm going to give you a promise. I'm going to make you a promise. And a promise I'm going to make to you, David, is that I will build for you a house. And what God meant by that is I will give you a dynasty. A dynasty. And now think about it this way. How many kings love dynasties? Like all kings, right? I mean, all kings love dynasties, meaning they just love to know their name is going to go on for the next 600,000, 2,000 years. Like, most of the times it never happens. But in those rare cases that it does, like, you're pretty stoked if you even knew that that was going on. But the fact of the matter is, is that all kings want to have some sort of way of leaving a dynasty that's going to go for a long time and that their son is going to reign in their place and their great and their grandson and then their great, your great-grandson, your great-great-grandson is going to rule in place. That's the hope of all kings. But here's what God says to David. He says, I'm going to give you a dynasty, but the dynasty that you're going to have, the king that will rule in your place will be a great king, and he will set all the wrongs to right. He will be a good king. He will restore all things. And what we see in Jesus is sort of this merging of two Old Testament thoughts. One Old Testament thought was out of Isaiah chapter 53 that God has said he made a promise that he was going to provide a servant, and the servant was going to come. The servant was going to take the weight 
of the sin of the world upon himself. He was going to bear something, and in his place or through that suffering, somehow peace was going to be birthed. And then another Old Testament train of thought is that God says, I'm going to provide a king, and the king is going to rule and reign. He's going to be powerful. He's going to come into glory, and he's going to establish the reign and the lineage and the dynasty of David. He's going to be a good king. And what we see in Jesus is sort of the merging of these two Old Testament thoughts, the suffering servant and the king of David, or the line of David, or the son of David, merging together, that he will be king, but the way that he will be king, and the way that he will establish his kingdom is that he will die. And so what we see here is that this guy, Bartimaeus, for some reason knows, uh, believes in his heart that whoever Jesus is, he happens to be this great king. Probably had no idea that this great king somehow even merged or even was overshadowed by this other picture of this Old Testament picture in Isaiah chapter 53. He had no idea, but in his mind, he knew that he knew that Jesus happened to be this king that was going to come and rule and reign. So when Jesus comes into a city, he's blind. In his mind, he realizes when Jesus comes or when this king comes, he's going to set all the wrongs to right. He's looking at his own life and saying, I got a lot of wrongs. I got a lot of things that are messed up. The most primary, most obvious is the fact that he's blind. You've got to think of it this way. Not only is this guy blind, but we're told nothing of this guy's dad. Told nothing of this guy's family. It was tough enough to just make ends meet back in that day, even if you had a family. But if you were blind and you had no family, if you were crippled and you weren't able to work or you weren't able to somehow bring in some form of income, you were basically left to the elements. I mean, you were forced to go to the street. You were forced to somehow pick up a sign. You were forced to go out and beg for money. And your sole dependence was the generosity of people. That was it. So here was this guy completely at the end of his life, totally marginalized, the type of guy that nobody would want to be around. He probably smelled. Nobody wanted to hang out with him. Probably didn't shower for many, many you know, weeks, maybe months. Very unkempt. His hair is probably long and scraggly. His beard is probably disgusting. He was the type of guy, especially if you're walking by yourself, you would totally walk to the other side of the street and avoid. Because you don't, you don't know what this guy's capable of. You would avoid him. And this is the type of moment that what's going on. He starts crying out to Jesus, saying, Jesus, you're the son of David. Have mercy on me. And so as he's screaming, as he's crying out loud, you'd imagine Jesus' disciples are kind of like, ah, wacko, nut job, crazy, disheveled dude, yelling about Jesus being son of David, bad PR. They're just like, Jesus, our advice to you as your PR campaign managers is that we should just shut this guy up and keep going forward, all right? So that's what they do. It's literally, in the, in the Greek text, I mean, a reasonable translation is that they went to this guy and said, shut up, be quiet, stop talking. What you're doing is drawing attention to yourself, and not only is that bad for our great and mighty king, but it's bad because if Roman guards hear you describing him as son of David, in other words, he's a king. It's pretty bad. That's like cruising around uh, downtown Washington, D.C. and saying, hey, we got a new president. Uh, we didn't vote him in. Uh, he didn't need to because we nominated him. He is the new president. Like, like that type of stuff gets you arrested or shot or both. The point of the matter is this. In, in Roman-occupied territory, you don't go around saying, oh, there's another king. You get killed for that. And so this is exactly what Blind Bartimaeus is doing is he's basically, for all intents and purposes, saying, Jesus, you're the king. Come, have mercy on me. His disciples freak out. Tell this guy to be quiet. 
Jesus has compassion, stops, draws him to himself. And I love this. And this is really what I want to point out here. In verse 51, Jesus then said to him, what do you want from me? Or what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Jesus asks the question, what do you want me to do for you? Okay, I want you to look in your Bibles. Go back to verse 36. This is the second time, actually. This is, again, one of the problems, like I said earlier, when we just read our Bibles or we kind of study it, um, break it down into small chunks, and we read it just quickly or read it over lengths of time, we we miss out on different facts like this. Because Mark intentionally put this question here. Greek, it's literally word for word, uh, the exact same as the question that's also poised in verse 36. And Mark, I believe, wants us to very clearly contrast these two. Jesus comes on two occasions. One, to his disciples, Peter and James, and, uh, and then one to this guy, blind Bartimaeus. And he asks the exact same question. What do you want me to do for you? Well, James and John, I should say, they, they come to Jesus and they say, well, here's what we want you to do. We want you to install either one of us, both of us, on the right hand and on the left hand of your kingdom. We want to be great. We want to be honored. We want to receive great power and authority and recognition and prestige and privilege when you come into your glory, Jesus. And Jesus basically rebukes him and says, you guys have no idea what you're asking about. And then Jesus asks the exact same question, this guy blind Bartimaeus. He says, what do you want me to do? And Bartimaeus says, I want you to heal me. One is a response by the Jesus' own disciples and apostles, and they respond by basically asking something they're totally ignorant of. They want to be great. In other words, they want to use Jesus as a means to obtain what they truly want. Blind Bartimaeus, he's just like, I want you, Jesus, but I know that you, having you, receiving you, will also bring healing to me. In other words, it's a package. I want you to heal me. I want you, Jesus, who is the healer to heal me. I want you, Jesus, who has the authority, the power to cast out, to destroy, to remove the infirmities that have kept me from being whole and full of peace. And what Mark, I think, is trying to do is to say in the story is that blind beggars get it more clearly with greater resolution than his closest disciples, which really should cause us to be humbled and always ask the question, what are the areas I'm missing in my life? If, if, if Jesus' own disciples that followed Jesus for three years, they were Jesus' closest friends, closest disciples. They ate with Jesus, walked with Jesus, heard sermons of Jesus, watched Jesus heal people, and they still didn't get it because in their mind, They saw Jesus as a means of obtaining greatness. I think what Mark is trying to show us through this story, through this comparative verse, is that the real problem is not just simply spiritual, physical blindness, but that there is a spiritual blindness that underlay all other forms of brokenness, dysfunctionality, sin in our lives. And the Bible describes this as a spiritual blindness. That we don't see clearly. We don't see God clearly. We don't see God's purposes clearly. 
It's one of the reasons why we do the things that we do, the reasons why we ask the questions oftentimes we ask, or one of the reasons why we pursue things that we pursue, one of the reasons why we act the way that we act, or why we treat people the way that we treat people, or why that we respond the way that we respond, is because really every single time there's some sort of brokenness or sinfulness or response that comes out that's not leading to wholeness, that's not leading to peace, it's not leading to shalom, that's not leading to light, penetrating and removing darkness that doesn't lead to peace coming and removing chaos. Those are always subtle forms that reveal to us there's a sense of blindness that we need to have the touch of Jesus upon us to heal us. That's what we see with this guy. That somehow Jesus heals not only his physical blindness but also heals his spiritual blindness that he sees clearly, he recognizes that in Jesus is life, and he turns to Jesus, trusts in Jesus as the life giver. And I think that's what Mark wants us to understand. The reality is, is that sometimes, you know, we can read our Bible, and Jesus is going to go on to say to this guy, he says, go your way, your faith has made you whole. So again, we're reminded of the very fact that the means by which we obtain physical healing, um, spiritual healing, is trust, faith. Jesus says, your faith has made you whole. The phrase that Jesus uses there, your faith has made you whole, is another word, translation you can say, your faith has saved you. Now, in other words, what was the most obvious thing that took place or transpired there, and I think what probably Mark is referring to when he says, your faith has saved you, um, it's the Greek word sozo, which basically means uh, you are healed. You have received the healing because you have trusted God. Now, sometimes, you know, as westernized Christians, we like to sort of... Uh, really dissect these types of things where we're like, well, is it spiritual healing or is it spiritual healing? Well, yes. I, I mean, the, the Bible a lot of times doesn't really make these very clear-cut distinctions. In fact, most first-century Jews, most first-century Christians, they would have just seen spiritual healing and physical healing as both sides of the same coin. In other words, when God shows up, when God moves, when God transforms by faith, when we trust him, when we trust God for who God is and trust God for the means which God provides primarily through his own son, Jesus, when we trust this as being God's solution, the point of the matter is, is that God brings healing. That's the bottom line. And I think that's the point that Mark wants us to understand. The implication is this, is that you and I, we're not whole people. We're not whole people. We, all of us, we have areas in our lives that were broken, areas that need to be put back together again. Uh, I've been watching a, a program um, lately. It was uh, produced by A&E. It's called Intervention. It's really an amazing uh, program. It's actually about drug addiction. And, um, you know, it's, in, in some ways, it's sort of the drug version of The Biggest Loser. I've told you about The Biggest Loser. It's like, you know, Biggest Loser, the drug of choice, or Biggest Loser is food. On this, on this, move, or this program, Intervention, the drug of choice is like usually meth or heroin or something like that. But what's really fascinating to me in, in those types of shows like that is that the dysfunctionality or the sin is so magnified because it's so obvious. But I can't help but when I'm watching this thinking, you know what, the reality is that there's all sorts of things that people trust in in which they're actually broken. And it could be even like uh, religious mentality or some sort of religious uh, spiritual pride that's a dysfunctionality that's a brokenness that's something that's not whole spiritual pride typically is not as noticeable as someone who weighs 400 pounds spiritual pride is not as noticeable as somebody that's constantly strung out spiritual pride typically is not going to be identified in the same ways as you would identify these other types of things 
But the problem is, we all have these things that we go to, we run to, to find comfort. The crazy thing is, is in the storyline of, of all of these sort of, um, you know, these real-time type programs like this about addictions, is really, they typically follow the same type of format. Usually the format, every single show is like this. Tells the story of a child that once was born. I mean, they always start there, like, they usually like interview a mom or a dad and they're like, I can't, you know, they were just so beautiful. They smiled. They were the happiest baby I've ever met. It's always the beginning of the story. It's always like, I love that child and they changed my life and they're so beautiful. And something happened. There's always some form of trauma or hardship or difficulty that transpires in someone's life that ultimately leads to either they're turning to food or they're turning to drugs or they're turning to something else that ends up beginning to destroy, to destroy them. But the fact of the matter is, is that all of us have these things that we run to. The Bible's going to describe it this way, is that we are spiritually broken. That the physical brokenness that we feel, beginning with aches and pains, beginning with you know, blindness, beginning with the inability to hear things physically, the, the fact that you know, you're growing great hairs or you're growing weight in places you never expected, or the fact that one of these days you're going to end up actually passing away and dying. All of those things ought to be little signs that point to a greater, more pernicious, more devastating spiritual brokenness inside of our hearts. That's what they should be pointing us to. In other words, just like this blind man by the name of Bartimaeus, he needed physical healing, he also needed spiritual healing. And he met Jesus, he was transformed, he was changed. But the same is true for all of us. We all have the same needs. And if you're here and in your mind you're like, I don't need it. I see clearly. I studied the Bible for a year. I read a book once by a theologian. I figured it out. I got it. The reality is, is that we all have these areas that need to be submitted to Jesus. Because what happens is, just like this guy blind Bartimaeus, or even like the disciples... We begin to view even good things as being ultimate things, final things, God-type things. And that basically begins to demonstrate the fact that we are broken, that we need help. We need some form of intervention. We need somebody from the outside to come in full of love. Funny thing is, in this show intervention I was watching yesterday, uh, the family comes together and they want to intervene on behalf of the daughter who's totally strung out all the time, all day long, on heroin. The problem is, is her family is just as dysfunctional as she is. They're just as messed up as she is, except they're not, none of them are drug addicts. You know, the, the, and the problem is that they're sitting in this big room and they're like, I need intervention. And the reality is, I'm thinking this, it's like, that's, that's good, it's a good start, it's a good place to begin, but the reality, what we really need is somebody that's not dysfunctional. What we really need is somebody who's not a sinner. What we really need is somebody who's not broken, just as broken as we are in another form of brokenness. What we need is somebody who is complete, somebody who is whole, somebody who is in the light to come rescue us out of our darkness. And this is the story that Mark's telling us. That's the story of how God became king. So it leads to this last question. How and what did it cost Jesus to heal this man of his blindness? I want to read you a verse out of Mark chapter 15. And basically what it says to us is this. Because by the time we get to the end of 
Mark's gospel account is that we see, again, like I said from the very beginning, everything in Jesus' life is going somewhere. It's going to the cross. And here's what Mark is going to tell us that happened to Jesus on the cross, that when the sixth hour had come, there was complete darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and he said, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what you need to see is that on the cross, and what Mark wants us to understand is that on the cross, Jesus, the only one who could ever be rendered as being rightfully given the place or the honor of first. He's the only one who can ever be rightfully given the honor of he deserves to be first. Jesus, the only one who has ever lived, I mean, his whole existence, if you can even describe it as that, he's always lived. He's always been in light, unapproachable, which means purity, beauty, glory, holy, all these things that we can only dream of and at best we can hope to see in some sort of a movie. But all of these things we dream about, we think about what must it be like, paradise, heaven, all these things, that's all that Jesus knew his entire life was because he was in fellowship with the Father. The Bible tells us in the presence of God is fullness of joy forevermore. That's all that Jesus knew. There was no deception in Jesus' life, he never knew an ounce or a trace of darkness, never knew what it meant to have someone deceive him or lie to him. Jesus, in the fellowship with the Father, had only known nothing but truth, respect, honor, worship, praise. It's all that Jesus knew. And on the cross, what we see, what we're told by Mark, is that for the first time, perhaps, in Jesus' existence in his life, he willfully exchanges light darkness that's all that Bartimaeus knew his whole life was darkness but on the cross Jesus takes upon himself Bartimaeus's darkness your darkness my darkness he bears something for us that you and I never even thought of and the reality is is that Bartimaeus may have thought in his life and his mind that this darkness that I've experienced is the worst thing, but what Jesus is basically saying, no, the worst blind, the worst darkness that you could ever face is the darkness that I'm about to face. But because I will face this darkness for you, it prepares the way, it gives back the opportunity for you to enter into my light. What you need to see is the price that Jesus paid in order to bring Bartimaeus out of his darkness was that Jesus would plunge himself into darkness. In the same way, the way that you will have your heart changed, the way that your darkness will be taken away, the way that your blindness, those things that you're blind to, those things that maybe you're not even aware of and how they're affecting your life or affecting the church community around you or other people around you or your marriage around you, your relationships around you, maybe you're not even aware of that, but the way that your heart gets changed is not by you saying, you know, I'm going to try harder, I'm just going to walk in the light more. That sounds nice, sounds very religious, but the bottom line is you try that and at some point you will fail and then you will feel as if you are plunging even further into darkness because you failed. But if you see that Jesus himself willfully plunged himself into darkness, the darkness that you and I truly deserve, to the degree that you see that he took upon himself that darkness, the blindness of the Father. When he spoke out to the Father, the Father spoke, didn't speak back. 
for the first time. That's all that Jesus knew was fellowship with the Father. But in that moment, on the cross, the Father turned his back. To the degree that you see that Jesus did that for you, that will change your heart. You'll find your heart change. You will find your heart softening towards those people that you're angry with. You'll find your heart softening towards people that you found yourself embittered with and frustrated with and things that you found yourself becoming a cynic over through in your life because of hurt, because of pain, through callousness. You'll find that God, by revealing to you, showing you the darkness that he pledged himself into, actually creates the way to pull you out of darkness into his light. Where? There's fullness, joy. I want to finish with three thoughts, three questions, basically, or three ways at which we can identify whether or not your spiritual blindness has been completely healed. I want to finish with this. First thing is this, is that you will see Jesus as the source of your life. You'll see Jesus as the source of your life. And the response is that you will worship Jesus. You will love him. You'll see him as that. For example, this man... Uh, we see his healing led to him leaving his old way of life. He immediately leaves his former life of being a beggar, and he starts following Jesus. He follows Jesus everywhere he goes. In other words, he leaves his former existence, his former life, and now becomes a follower of Jesus. He's got a brand new identity. He's a follower of Jesus. He's changed. That's what it means. And again, just to kind of point out the program that I watched uh, the other day, Intervention, it was interesting, the conversation with this one guy, just super hardened guy, and the reality is, is that he literally throughout the movie started out when he was like 12 years old, had this great relationship with his mom, loved his mom, and his mom cheated on the dad, and left, and he basically describes, he even says it himself, he says, I worshipped my mom. I worshipped my mom. His own words. I mean, he's using religious language to describe his relationship with his mom. He says, I worshipped my mom, and when my mom crumbled, my life crumbled. That's exactly why God says don't worship any other God. Because every false God we worship will crumble. The expiration date might be further in the future than others, but at some point, our gods that we make up, created beings, will crumble. And when they crumble, you will crumble along with it. That could be a job. That could be a family member. That could be a spouse. That could be, if you're a girl, your love always wanting to be in a relationship. That could be a position. Maybe you want to be in a position, in a business, in a career, in a job, in a church, and you idolize that. That becomes the thing that you live for. Your whole life is being given over towards that thing. And when that thing begins to look like it's not going to happen for you, you become embittered, you become angry. Why? Because you have built your life on that thing. That was the true God that you worshiped. But for Bartimaeus, Jesus, he saw, was the source of his life. You left everything and followed Jesus. The second thing that we see is that you will see people as his image bearers. Our response ultimately will be dignity, value, respect that we will give to other people. We see this in the first healing, that when Jesus heals this guy, he says he looks around, he sees people like trees. Spurgeon, uh, the great preacher from England, did a really great sermon one time. You can look it up on the internet, and he talks about how Really, part of the gospel, what it does is it helps us, it transforms us from seeing people as just merely being trees to actually being people. See, our problem is that oftentimes, just like the apostles, they just saw people. When they asked Jesus, or when Jesus asked them, what do you want me to do for you? They said, we want to be in control. We want power. When people are just simply commodity to shuffle around, when they're just pawns for you to play around with, 
When you see people in your life, if you're a business owner, and you just see people as being pawns that just are there to help support you, if you're in a church and you're in a leadership group or you lead a community group and you see those people as just merely being people that you can position around and posture and shuffle around in order to bring you and maximize glory to your name, you won't treat them with dignity, value, and respect. You can't because they're just pawns to you. They're not people to you. They're not beings created in the image of God. But once your eyes begin to be opened, spiritual blindness is pushed away. People actually become people image bearers and therefore you have now the opportunity to treat them with dignity and value and respect that means that now that the homeless nameless person on the street corner is not just a homeless nameless person there's somebody that was created in the image of God God loves them when we see people that are broken and hurting children that are being raised up and brought up without any parents foster kids they're not just simply some kid on a television screen looking sad that's an image bearer of God and that moves compassion in our hearts because we see them for who they truly are, not just simply trees, not just simply objects, but as people. The third and final thing, one of the ways in which we can identify if spiritual blindness has been healed, is that you see power as a means of honoring Jesus. Now, power can come through privilege, prestige, money. That's oftentimes why people want money, because money is not just like, oh, I like the green stuff. Like, you, there's a reason why you like the green stuff, is because that buys you power. You buy stuff to impress people don't even like you just, just because. Because you know that if you can impress them, then you have something over them. You're bigger, bigger than them, better than them. Some of the reasons why you might just, you know, go out and find a really beautiful girlfriend. That's what sometimes dudes can do. They just find the most beautiful girlfriend because she's a trophy to them. She's just a possession that brings him praise and honor and glory. But when you understand, when you see clearly, when your eyes have been opened, power doesn't become something that's used to advance your cause, your kingdom, but it's one to promote Jesus's, to honor him, to glorify him. Your money becomes something that you use not just to collect or not just to protect, but something that you release to move the gospel forward. It's one of the reasons why people hate talking about money. They're like, don't talk about money. Why? Because it's your God. That's why you don't like it. Like, did he just say that? The pastor just say that? That's offensive to me. I, I know it's totally offensive. I realize it. I get it. But when we see money as just being something that is collateral that we use to build up our own name and for our own kingdom and for our own sake, that's the one thing we got to protect because that's all I have. That's my podium that I stand on. Everything in my life rises and falls on that. But if we see power that comes through money, power or prestige, honor, if we see it as being something to proclaim how great God is, then we're free to release it because here's the, pro here's the reality. We're not finding our identity through our money. We're not finding our identity through pawns that we move around, shuffle around in our life. We're not finding our identity in something that we're hoping Jesus will give to me so that I can be great. What the Bible describes is that we are actually truly free. We're free. We find our affirmation, we find our approval from God, and he is big enough to love us. He is big enough to cover our sins. He's big enough to carry us through adversity and trial and hardship. So the real issue is this, in short, 
Jesus were to come to you today, right now, and ask you, so what do you want me to do for you? What would be your answer? What would you say to him? Jesus, make me great, because I really want to be great. Jesus, make me a really good businessman, because I want people to recognize how wonderful I am. Again, I'm just simply saying, when we build our kingdom on anything other than himself, all of those things have a shelf life. And when they crumble, trust me, they will crumble. You will crumble with it. That's the point that Jesus is making. So to build yourself on anything other than Jesus is foolish. It's not wise. And it leads to heartache, maybe down the line, but heartache nonetheless. Jesus wants to rescue you. He wants to save you. He wants to heal you. He wants to remove your spiritual blindness. Perhaps even your physical blindness, physical affirmities. I'm going to pray. We're going to finish with worship. Sing to Jesus. And what I encourage you as we just sing, I want you to just remember the question that Jesus asked Bartimaeus and then also asked his disciples, what do you want me to do for you? Take it up with Jesus. He's asking you that same question. What do you want him to do for you? What's your response to him? What's your true, honest response to him? He's here. He loves you. He demonstrated his love to all of us and that while we were still sinners, Paul says, Jesus died for us. That's the extent, that's the depth of the love that he has for us. So we can partake of communion if you like. If you're a believer, I encourage you to partake. Uh, remembering what Jesus did for you on the cross, the bread and the cup resembles not only his body, but also his blood that was broken and poured out and shed for you. If you're not a Christian, I invite you to trust Jesus, to by faith trust in him, to see him as more trustworthy as anything else in your life, more than anything else in your life. Because the fact of the matter is, is all of us here in this room, no matter who you are, are trusting something. You're trusting something. Something to affirm you, something to make you feel great, something to give you an identity. All of you are doing that. All of us. That's the default mode of our heart, is to create idols. Jesus, by his love, wants to free us from that. And what frees us from that is seeing Jesus on the cross embrace, envelop himself in the the blindness, in the darkness, so that you who are in the darkness can be given light and life and freedom. I'm going to pray. We'll sing. We'll respond.